0: And so one thing I can do at the point where I'm feeling particularly just bored out of my mind.
1: Yeah, uninspired.
0: Mm-hmm, I start to introduce some sort of pleasure, some type of a pleasure that I know in myself will, you know, become quite strong. Mm. Um, the, <laughs> the thing I'm thinking about right now for some reason is masturbation. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs>
0: That's one example. <laughs> So the brain is obsessed with what just happened and what's about to happen. Hmm. And a lot of brain power is devoted to predicting what will happen next. Right. And if there is an indication of danger, and given the brain's natural bias toward negative processing, the brain is going to amplify the signs the, the signs of danger yeah. so you pay attention to that and you act accordingly
1: aha yes hi i'm tan lei and this is episode 3 volume 2 of noticing the obvious my guest is dr melissa farmer she's a clinician scientist with roots in sexology pain research and neuroscience She's also a co-founder of a Finnish-American health tech startup company. She's joining me now from Chicago. I really enjoyed talking to Melissa because, one, she knows so much about the stuff that I'm interested in. And two, she describes herself as an eternal student. There's so many topics we wanted to chat about in this episode, but we decided to keep it in the realm of how the brain treats information, and how we can learn better, and how the brain deals with pain. All right, so let's do it. Here's Melissa. All right, how Hmm. are you, Melissa?
0: I'm excellent. How are you?
1: I am really good. I'm so pleased you could do this. We've been talking about this for a few weeks. Yes. Okay, uh, let me ask you, let's start off with, can you tell me, how do you describe yourself? Like, what do you do? Do you describe yourself as a neuroscientist? or?
0: It depends on who I'm talking with, um, because uh, certain words don't mean anything to certain people. Um, I guess... I would say I'm a former researcher, um, and I have training in psychology and neuroscience and basic science. Right now, I'm a entrepreneur and mm-hmm. sort of discovering that world, um, which is uh, – so I left academia about a couple of years ago. Mm. It wasn't making me happy. So I would describe myself as more happy
1: <laughs> <laughs> than I've
0: been in, in years. <laughs>
1: excellent so the entrepreneurial life the capitalist life is uh
0: well not not so much i mean it's it's weirdly i've been able to put into practice more of my skills doing this than i've been able to with all of my research awesome because originally with my research i had had the strategy of like i wanted to be able to answer any question so i obtained a really large variety of experience from, you know, animal work to, you know, therapy, providing therapy to people. And the, I ended up only behaving or only being able to use, um, the more analytical part with brain imaging. And now I get these, like, just a problem is put in front of me. Hmm. It's like, solve this. It's like, yes. And I can just figure (laughs) it out.
1: Can we talk about, like, one of my favorite talks that I've seen you give. And, you know, I was just smiling the whole way through. I think I told (laughs) you. So uh, you talk about the birth and death of the pain engram. And I want to start with the magical four-hour encoding window. And this speaks to me because I see it a lot. I mean, I'm interested in how we learn, meaning how we encode new information into our brain. I see it in myself and I see it in other people all the time, which is we learn stuff and then it doesn't stick.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <coughs> Excuse me. So, um, you know, when you said that, it, it, even though it sounded really obvious, it spoke to me. So can you can you talk a little bit about that? Why and how the brain acquires new information? And why does some stuff stick mm. and others don't?
0: So the brain adapts to what experiences we hand to it in a way. So a lot of the memory mechanisms are uh, dependent on your experiences and how many times those experiences are reinforced. Mm. Uh, So in a sense, repetition, but there are certain things that can sort of fast track the strength of a memory. And one of those things is emotion. It can be strong positive emotion or strong negative emotion it biologically fast-tracks that information to become a memory more quickly and to become a stronger memory. Hmm. This is why if you pair strong emotions with something you're trying to learn, you're more likely to remember it. Uh, Hmm. For instance, if you're ever on a roller coaster with someone, uh, you might Hmm. think that they're more attractive. There's a study on that, actually. Wow. Um, You know, uh, trauma victims, if there's a pet around, they become very attached to that pet. The, the idea is that if an important event is happening, the emotional response and all the neurochemicals that are released are informing the brain that it's important. And that's mm-hmm. what triggers this cascade that uh, creates a strongly encoded memory. And the four hours, uh, it's, it can be up to six hours, but um, that's based on how long it takes uh, protein synth- synthesis to kick in. Mm-hmm. So, whenever in animal experiments years and years ago, whenever they look at what is needed to create a memory in the first place, uh, there's a certain period of time whenever you can, you know, put in training or erase training. Uh, and whatever you end up uh, creating, whatever experience you create, sort of quote unquote solidifies or becomes less labile after six hours, because that's whenever protein synthesis begins to occur in the hippocampus and that process Mm -hmm. lasts two weeks. So Mm -hmm. in a sense, memories, you could argue that especially emotional memories take two weeks to mature. And you see this, uh, you see this two week window in a lot of strange places in science. Um, Off the top of my head, I can't think of any, but Okay. Um, <laughs> but, uh, just pay attention to the two weeks, um, because, mm. uh, you'll, you'll see whether it's a behavioral study, there might be a treatment of, okay. For example, uh, therapeutic writing paradigms, um, you tend to see a change in symptoms after two weeks of writing about thoughts and emotions in an emotional way. Mm. Um, and that is in turn related to improved immune function and greater capacity to cope with whatever trauma you were writing about.
1: Okay, so knowing this information, how can we hack it? How can we use it to improve ourselves? So if I'm sitting and reading a book in a completely emotionless state, Mm. how can I make sure what I'm reading sticks with me?
0: Well, first of all, you need to know what Turns you on in a sense. Uh, What what is a very quick way that you can trigger your sympathetic nervous response? So a little bit of the fight or flight that that Mm. happens not only during negative situations but also positive situations. Maybe there's a song that just like really gets you going, or maybe it's a little bit of exercise. You can probably artificially induce it a little bit that way. Mm. Um, If there is a maybe you have a strong emotional memory associated with a picture or with, um, I don't know, a video on your phone. Mm. Uh, first, by priming yourself with that emotion and just really focusing on it, like savoring it, putting yourself in there. Because one of the tricks, quote-unquote tricks, about these uh, memory encoding processes is that the deeper you engage with the memory, the stronger you can affect it. And that goes for not only creating a strong memory or adding a strong memory to another strong memory, it also applies to watering down a strong fear memory that yeah. you don't want. Yeah. So the idea is that um, if you're able to purposefully engage positive, strong emotion, uh, you'd be able to encode that information better. Fear is a better teacher, unfortunately. So Mm -hmm. if you were really set on remembering something, uh, creating an experience that induced fear would be more effective. Wow. Our our brains are naturally oriented toward negative emotion because it's more important.
1: Oh, wow. That's so well put. Because I was talking to a friend about this just today. And what you just said, that last sentence, our brains are designed to it's, notice yeah, we have a, negative emotions.
0: Yeah, but I mean, in terms of our ancestors, the ones that were, I don't know, smelling the roses uh, and focusing on positive things rather than the ones that were running away from the tiger or the lion, mm. uh, there was one group that got caught and the more cautious uh, group uh, that was focused Survived. on- Survived. Yeah, exactly. So our natural there, it's unclear what the proportion is. I've heard two to one uh, importance for negative to positive emotion, but depending on the experiment you run, it varies. But the idea also is that if there's this inherent ratio of importance of negative to positive emotion, hmm. to counter it, you need to add, for instance, twice as much positive reinforcement to get neutral. So it, also suggests that if you're trying to um, replace or uh, revise negative emotion, you have to work quite a bit harder to replace that with positive emotion that is strong enough to counter the valence in your brain. Wow. And I think that one way you can sort of jump up a few rungs is uh, by... Focusing on certain positive emotions that, uh, like compassion, um, uh, gratefulness, because all of these emotions also have body states associated with them, and the sort of social emotions are the ones that have the most diffuse body representation associated with them, and that you sort of feel good all over.
1: Hmm. So So that's a hypothesis.
0: I have no proof for that.
1: What's an example of a social emotion
0: um, uh, for example, compassion there are emotions that we experience about ourselves, and then there are emotions we experience by virtue of our relationship with other people, and that's mm. said really com- in a complicated way for purpose in that we we synchronize with other people through through empathy and through our our own awareness of our body state. So there's some interesting studies that have uh, shown that the more aware you are of your internal body sensations, the stronger your uh, empathy is with someone else who's in pain, but also the more accurately you can tell um, their pain ratings. So it's almost as if looking at another person, if I'm able to somewhat feel or imagine that state in myself, mm. that's, that's the physical effect of empathy. It's feeling what the other person is feeling through this imaginal mm. process. Now, But what when- that does also, it, it, it goes the other way in that if you see someone else who's uh, feeling very positive emotions, you can yes. synchronize with that as well and mirror it and you know lift your your own internal state yeah i love this the the sensory aspect of emotion is something i'm getting into right now
1: yeah and sounds-
0: especially with pain our our brains don't necessarily discriminate between where these sensations come from they just sort of concentrate on the feeling so, for instance, let's say that you have leg pain mm. and uh, so a lot of the sensation that you're focused on is is you know in your left leg. One of the ideas is that by creating an emotional state, a positive emotional state, and inducing the physical response up in your chest and your head, you're drawing your brain's attention to these other sensations. And if you do that often enough, you ex- you could theoretically dramatically reduce or extinguish the leg pain if it's chronic so there are all sorts of ifs ands or buts there but um just the idea that emotions are a way to modulate your sensory experience and modulating your sensory experience can manipulate your emotions as well
1: that's a big idea just quickly Mm -hmm. i want to close this part which is just um just about the four hour. Um, I didn't really mm-hmm. clarify it. So, you said it synthesizes within four to six hours the protein. Yes,
0: I can talk in a little more depth. So, from my discussions, uh, the this is the theory of reconsolidation, memory reconsolidation, and it was proposed by this guy Kareem Nader, um, who mm. was at the in graduate school. He was at, at McGill also, so. I knew him. Uh, and I'd asked him about sort of the optimal encoding window parameters uh, because people had tried to apply his verdant experiments to humans and were having variable success. And based on my last conversation with him, which was years and years and years ago, um, he suggested that an hour after you begin to reactivate a memory was sort of prime time so the 4 hours is it is an equal potency in changing your memory hmm. there's sort of a a dramatic increase in in encoding capacity in the first hour and then after the first hour you know you try to activate whatever it is as much as possible and then you reinforce that state and you can you reinforce the state that you want to sort of solidify over the remaining two to three hours.
1: And, you, and you're talking about creating and storing new memories.
0: hmm Okay. So an example might be, um, would you like a, a trauma example or a happy example?
1: <laughs> oh, give me a happy one, please. Okay.
0: <laughs> uh, let's say that I want to... Let's say that I want to um, like a subject more. I'm really getting bored okay, with that's this really thing that work. I'm reading. And so one thing I can do at the point where I'm feeling particularly just bored out of my mind.
1: Yeah, uninspired.
0: Mm-hmm, I start to introduce some sort of pleasure, some type of pleasure that I know in myself will, you know, become quite strong. Mm. Um the, the thing I'm thinking about right now, for some reason, is masturbation. <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> that's one example. But you and I'm
1: also... thinking that's a natural. <laughs> I mean, I'm also thinking that's a that's what most that's a natural tendency. When you're bored, you want to do something that's fun.
0: Yeah, and and you could make that a little more efficient, I guess, by pairing it with a type of information that you f- find boring, uh, because the idea is that as you Whatever you do to escalate your, um, your <laughs> yeah, your arousal state, your sympathetic arousal response. Okay. As you increase that, and as you m- maintain a sort of the positive valence that it's a, a positive experience, whatever you do to get there is the right stuff so you can do this behaviorally you can do this with medications but even just behaviorally getting really excited about something Mm. Uh, so let's say maximum boredom is time zero Uh, masturbation begins and peaks uh (laughs) one hour later you continue to engage with the boring material to where that boring material is now linked with this pleasure in your body
1: Hmm, okay. And let's so, say,
0: oh, oh, sex is such an easy example. Let's say yeah, that you go have ahead. an orgasm yeah. and you feel great. Uh, there's a period of satiety and reward encoding after that. So but then do you want to come
1: th- back to the work?
0: Well, yeah, then you spend the next, after after that happens, you spend the next couple of hours reading back over the material that you want to remember.
1: Wow, okay. So all these people... I don't know, (laughs) all these other people who are studying and working and then they hit a brick wall and then they go and spend, I mean, you said an hour, but let's say these other people spend 15 minutes spending some alone time and then they come back. That's actually beneficial for them, you're saying?
0: Oh, yeah. Well, it's beneficial if they want to remember that that piece of um, information that they began with. So the keys there are really strongly activating the boredom, the initial state, Mm. and then really strongly activating this sort of the physiological state you want to replace it with, which is the positive emotion, and making sure that they both happen at the same time. And super if you want to supersize it, if you want to really make it most effective, Mm. you see if there's some way that The information could surprise you yep uh so that that additional bit of novelty that salience makes the event it makes the brain really focus in on the the experience and encode it even more strongly
1: wow okay well now you have to you have Mm -hmm. to give me the other side now so you said uh the happy yeah the trauma so with trauma, I'm guessing you want to suppress it. You don't want to remember it.
0: Exactly, which is, which is reinforcing the power of it. It's reinforcing the, the fear associated with the memory. So in a, in a way, the best way to reinforce a, a traumatic memory is to not interact with it at all. Actually, I Best can't say th- either to. that, or you're interacting with like it's PTSD and it's uncontrollable. You're you can't control how you're interacting. It's just sort of invading your 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 life. Um, the the thing is that whenever traumatic things happen to us, uh, just to cope with it, we often push it away or you know create some sort of internal uh, parcelation. To where we don't have to deal with what that really was.
1: Mm.
0: And that's protective. But it also often creates habits that, you know, over the course of years are no longer helpful. And so that's one of the goals behind, for example, uh, working with people with trauma. um, To associate, or to first differentiate what is the memory and what is you now. And then to face parts of it in a way that you're comfortable with. So not all at, all at once in a forceful manner. Um, and to create meaning from it. So there needs to be an association, a linkage between the parts that didn't have... Often people with traumatic memories may remember what it looked like, but they don't remember what they thought. Or they might remember what they felt, but they don't remember what was sa- what was said. And part of the treatment for traumatic memories is bringing all of those components together, which is sort of like getting all the edges of that web activated to mm. where you're able to introduce um, both physiological calm by, you know, deep breathing or, or meditation or mm. medication. Um, but also using that as an opportunity to recreate the story of what that was in your life
1: okay wait so i have to ask an obvious question so you're saying traumatic memories we've pushed them away so we can barely remember little bits and pieces we remember you know some details but we've blocked out a lot of details Mm -hmm. so why do we need to recall it all because you said the treatment is to bring it all back what why is that necessary if it's blocked away isn't that a good thing
0: well, the problem is is that it's very hard to fully lock something away. Uh, mm-hmm. It sort of bleeds out into normal life. Uh, mm-hmm. It creates patterns, uh, expectations of how you think other people will respond to you or act. So it can mm-hmm. affect romantic relationships and work relationships. In that it creates a, a template of this is how people are. And this is what I need to do in order to either stay safe or to be loved by other people.
1: Right. So people, even for those people who feel like they've dealt with it, they've removed this trauma out of their lives, it's in the past, it's gone. Even for those people, it might be creating some negative effect in their current relationships with humans that they might not be aware that this thing is the thing that's causing it.
0: It's possible, Um, but also uh, they might not be ready to face it. And that's okay, too. And that you're... Sometimes, first of all, these memories are encoded at the age at which which they happened. So if someone was uh, sexually abused whenever they were eight, they remember it as an eight-year-old with eight-year-old reasoning. Mm. So the solution... To going back to that kind of memory is very different from if it happened you know a year ago right. with your adult mind. So y- you'd then have to look at what kind of comfort, or what kind of healing would an eight-year-old child need?: Right. to be able to deal with this, and how much could they handle? How much could you handle at that time? So there are dramatic ways to do these memory interventions and then more gentle, gradual ways. So that's the desensitization. In therapy, it's known as desensitization versus flooding is the psychological term for all or nothing. Let's look at your your trauma right now and relive it and work through it until you're just, you know, okay.
1: Yeah. Now, I always wonder, like, I can understand the kind of person who realizes this and then seeks help. I mean, I can understand that what about those people who don't realize this is what they need and they just have a you know they just have crappy relationships everywhere they just completely you know miserable but they don't know why
0: absolutely um for those individuals first there has to be the motivation in that yeah. Will it do they feel like it would even benefit them? It's not in terms of like, well, do they, you know, do they have the guts to face it? It's not Mm. about that. It's, is this something that has created enough, you know, turmoil in their life that they want to address it and are starting to look for um, explanations? Mm. So that needs to happen first. And then usually some sort of objective helper is Mm. useful in helping uh, them to shift their viewpoint of something that like a meaning that is very set in their mind. Like this is how the event happened. Someone from a different perspective is often needed to shift, to shift how an event Absolutely. is seen.
1: Totally get it. And,
0: yeah. and it's how the event is seen that leads to the healing. It, you know, you don't go back in time and change what happened. you, Make sense of it and and work through some of the feelings. A lot of the feel, the feelings that are sort of stagnant and still there. I mean, I there are some people who are more insightful than others, and
1: you mean about themselves?
0: Yeah, and it's and it's I you can't blame someone for not being a certain way. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you, you can look to their history, like maybe they weren't raised to express their emotions very much. A lot of mm. men in the U.S. for sure are like that. And mm. uh, that if they aren't ever, if they cry, they're called sissies. Mm.
1: Um, I think that's men you know. around the world.
0: Well, and, and that, that I, f- I feel that has an awful effect on men because it yeah. creates very few situations where a man can be emotional. One of those situations, this is one of the insights I had from uh, whenever I was doing couples therapy, uh, some of the men who would come in, th- the only way they knew to express emotion and intimacy was through sex.
1: Mm.
0: And so whenever their partner would withhold or there'd be some sort of conflict, they'd feel deeply hurt mm. and rejected because this is how like, they were longing to feel close to their partners. In a sort of a how women are raised and how we just maybe are naturally built we our expressions are more verbal, more mm-hmm. gesture based um, and and it wouldn't have ever occurred to me that that was the case before I met these guys in therapy it It blew my mind mm. that sex might be the primary form of intimacy and it's not just about getting off it's about feeling close because they don't know how else to feel close
1: and that's the only time it's okay to be close
0: yeah to be vulnerable and you're expected to be vulnerable it's okay to be vulnerable
1: so you can imagine so many people because we talked about you know that kind of trauma from the past if it's really big, then you can imagine that being that being a strong motivating factor for you to seek help. And if it's small, then you're fine. But you can imagine a large majority of people walking around with traumas that are not so mm-hmm. huge that it's going to push you to go and see a therapist.
0: Yeah, but there's... But, you know,
1: just in that middle ground where it's just causing you enough damage, but you don't realize what's damaging you.
0: The thing is, is everyone at some level, most people deep down do feel damaged.
1: Yeah, <laughs> and, most people. And these are,
0: the, well, but it's, these are events that often happen whenever they were kids and they had the understanding of a child mm. where, you know, maybe they felt shame and they didn't need to feel shame, but their parent didn't know to reinforce, oh, this is okay if you, exactly you know, exactly. shit yourself that's that's natural this isn't your fault Mm -hmm. and so you'll find that underneath a lot of people it's in cbt cognitive behavioral therapy it's called a core belief but there are only there are less than 10 core beliefs that most people carry and these things are like i'm not lovable i'm not good enough i i don't deserve to be loved Mm -hmm. very simple statements statements a child could voice Mm. that underlie many layers of uh, insecurity that do play out in your normal life. Because one of the ideas is that we often act out in the opposite way to compensate for this, this feeling.
1: Yeah. Does it help you as a researcher, as a student of this? Does it help you knowing all this? Does it help you in your everyday life? How often do you refer to this? To, um, to, to which parts research. of this <laughs> to, uh, <laughs> to stuff that you uh, learn you know you, you research every day you must be uh, the most well-balanced person now
0: <laughs> <laughs> I I am I constantly try <laughs> um, I'm more well-balanced than I have been in the past though the thing that comes up again and again for me with what I'm doing now is um I have always been very empathic since I was young. Hmm. And uh, one of the things I realized working with pain patients is that I wasn't afraid to feel their pain with them. There's a problem with that and that if you keep that pain, that builds up in yourself and you have other people's stuff in you.
1: Yes, I was going to ask so, <laughs> that. Is it a good <laughs> thing? Which is why to I, don't so... do right. I, I don't do therapy. Right.
0: I don't do therapy because I'd rather keep that trait in myself even though it's you could argue it's negative. That's something that has allowed me to really quickly um, calibrate myself to a person experiencing pain in front of me. And and I can get a lot deeper more quickly. And that also means that whatever I'm communicating to them, they'll more likely receive with, with less uh, of a critical filter. Because Do you- they don't often have the experience of someone just feeling their pain with them.
1: Hmm. And do you have any tools for letting go of that pain mm-hmm. when you need to? You know, once you take on somebody else's pain, you know, how do you remind yourself, I, I shouldn't be holding on to this?
0: Well, I've gotten a lot better over the years. Um, but I a good uh, sauna <laughs> <laughs> yeah. will work. Uh, In that um, there have been times after sort of dealing with someone's stuff, I've, you know, gone through, you know, sort of the hot-cold pattern, and during the rest period in between, there's just emotions that are coming up that aren't mine, and it's just sort of like getting out. Um, There's no way to describe this that doesn't sound hokey. (laughs) Uh, But, uh, for instance, having a bath with sage and Epsom salt and baking soda. And okay, just this is listening not to all.
1: this is concrete tactics. I love it.
0: <laughs> um, also, just deep breathing uh, and um, doing heart meditations have helped quite a bit. Uh, so it's a certain type of meditation where you imagine yourself breathing in and out of your sort of your heart center, and I don't know what it does, but it it makes me feel good. <sighs>
1: So you enjoy, you said you enjoy being an entrepreneur. So can you tell us a little bit about your project?
0: Yeah, so Avo uh, Health is a company, a startup that was formed by a patient entrepreneur mm-hmm. and a scientist, a brain scientist. Uh, and that's one of the things I love about it in that in all of the decisions that they're making, they constantly think about the patient's well-being. So it's an attempt to take the science that has been evolving in Dr. Abkarian's, uh research lab over the past several years, and to transform it in a way that can affect and help people who have pain right now. Mm. So one of the ideas is that it usually takes ten years for science to trickle down uh, to the level of you know actually being applied to patients. It mm. takes just a period of time. And even for drugs, you know, 15 to 17 years of a wait.
1: That long? And
0: Yeah. So, so the idea is that if something exists right now that can help a patient with pain, they deserve access to that. Yes. Just because their doctor doesn't know about it, just because hospital systems don't know about it, doesn't mean that they don't have the right to know it. Mm. In the U.S., there's an average of... Four to 11 hours of pain education in med school. Hmm. And most of that is acute, sort of normal pain processing and uh, use of opioids following surgery. So the average doctor is not a pain expert. Right. But we have this sort of blind faith that all doctors know everything. Yep. So it's, they, that's one of the reasons why, um, you know, we, put this this company together because the patients weren't getting access to data that actually exists you know findings that actually exist like you know we have we're able to predict with over uh, 80% accuracy whether someone's going to have pain in a year wow you know we can we all this knowledge exists and it's not being used because it isn't being disseminated properly and it isn't being understood And, you know, in the meantime, people are living years of their lives in pain. So, this is ultimately an attempt to fast track patients' access to knowledge that scientific knowledge that is here right now. And as it evolves, I expect a lot of the people who look at our app to be quite cynical. Yeah. And it's written in a way that assumes that. Um so I think the hardest thing is would be for someone to open up to the idea that it is okay it's safe to hope a little because it's a very dangerous it's it's a dangerous heart space and that if they open themselves up they make themselves vulnerable to another demoralizing Disappointing experience where they it just reinforces their you know belief that they're destined to suffer, you know, they'll never get rid of this pain. Yeah, that's a yeah, so it's a self preservation tactic to be cynical. It's yeah, so I I think that's the biggest hurdle.
1: Yes, the biggest thing to overcome self preservation that's a great point. I'm just wondering how. I think once just like we said earlier, once you've accepted, once you've done the self-diagnosis that you are in pain, I think it's easier for you to go and search for a solution. But I wonder how many of them or how many of us don't realize that we're in pain. We're just, you know, how many how many of these guys are just pissed off at the world, for example, are just mad, just angry but they haven't taken the step to realize I have this pain.
0: I mean, some people don't want to think that they have chronic pain because there's a stigma related to that. Mm. And you know, th- there is the danger of taking on that identity as a person with chronic pain. And some people do take on that identity and it's, it it is a, it's like admitting you're an addict. Not to say that this is like a, an addiction, but it's absolutely it's facing it's, it's a, really you have a problem. Deep um problem, yeah, that, that requires help that you can't manage right. yourself. And
1: and I'm just imagining not I'm just imagining a lot of people unwilling to do that.
0: It's possible. Um Because once you're willing to
1: do it, it's easy. Then you go and you're looking for solutions. And people who are seeking solutions, they're easy to serve. They're easy to help. The ones who are not seeking solutions, the ones who are stubborn and or who are just completely unaware, those are the ones that are difficult to help, right?
0: Well, if if we don't have access to them, yes. Um, I... I'm, I'm having sort of conflicting feelings because I have a a belief that you never take down a defense that you can't put, put back up in an appropriate amount of time. And if someone doesn't have the resilience of the defense mechanisms needed to face that, then it would be dangerous for them. It could be harmful. It could be emotionally devastating.
1: Dangerous for them to put down to, the defenses to,
0: yeah to 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 open up yeah to because there's so many emotions associated with pain because it sort of spills out into everything it, it's never just the pain it's what the pain has changed about your life about and and we often define ourselves by what we can do so it's, it's, it, there's this uncomfortable overlap between, perceived overlap between pain and identity that, that is difficult to address and to solve. And that that's what, I would suggest that that's what is holding those people back. They don't, they don't want to assume that identity that pain is dominant, even if it is. There are just so many reasons why that could happen that it's hard for me to make a statement about whether it's good or bad. Mm. You know, if they're from a family that, you know, historically they, they don't express emotions or only positive ex- emotions can be expressed. Yeah. They've well, been that's, conditioned for a lifetime to not yeah. do what you're asking me Well, that's to a do. huge
1: thing. Like we're, we're supposed to, th- thinking positively is the thing to do. Right, like, we're not supposed to acknowledge. Neg- we're not supposed to think negatively.
0: And yet, our brains are biased <laughs> to always think negatively. It's.
1: Yeah.
0: I mean, there's also a sense that a feeling positive, like faking it, isn't a good thing from experience and just from seeing people faking it can often unfortunately bring worse. more change well it depends even if you don't mean it if you say statements that uh, counters really negative thoughts it can sort of neutralize them like i i remember just being sort of disappointed in myself whenever i was you know looking through the cbt stuff and trying things on myself and Oh my God, I'm that simple. <laughs> <laughs> Give
1: um, me an example.
0: Well, like, uh, uh, so that would be in grad school where um, I had, a, so I did an experiment infecting mice with yeast infections and the, the mice kept on being uh, contaminated. They were mm-hmm. in a biosafety room. And I got to the point where it had happened so many times my thought was this experiment is never gonna happen. I'm not gonna get a PhD. This I should give up now. Hmm. And just saying to myself, this is, you know, this is these are solvable things. This isn't your whole PhD. You have other projects. You'll be able to, even if this doesn't work out, you have other things going on. And unfortunately it did it did work at making me feel better.
1: (laughs) Awesome. Um, okay, so just to finish off, going back to your company, Avo Health, I know we touched on it a little bit earlier, but could you just summarize the connection between pain and the brain?
0: Yes, so pain is a perception, a sensory perception similar to vision, touch, taste, smell, and so part of uh our initial understanding of pain is that it's brain focused. The brain needs the body, and the body needs the brain. So the brain is hungry for sensory information that's coming up to it. But in turn, to do something about it, the brain has to exert a control over the body in order to react and to protect. So it's the brain isn't a passive recipient of a pain signal from the body. The brain helps construct the pain experience, both with the sensory information that you get, the emotional history you have, your expectations, context cues, whether you feel safe. All of these things uh, factor into your pain experience. And so the idea is that because it's an emotionally-laden perception, it is susceptible to the rules of emotional learning. And the, emotional, the rules of emotional learning are finite, they're very set. And that's whenever you have a strong emotion linked with information, it becomes encoded as an emotional memory. And that's uh, one of the insights that has come out of Dr. Upcarian's work in that whenever you see people within the first two to three months of developing back pain, you look at their brains, it's mostly sensory-ish you know, activity that's happening whenever they're, you know, as they're rating their pain moment to moment. After a year for the people who still have pain, sensory emotion or sensory regions are no longer related to that perception it's the emotional regions in the brain that are mediating that sensory experience Mm. and if that's true then the treatment needs to be emotionally focused learning yep and it's not saying that that you know the the periphery, the body is unimportant. It's it's all they're all important signals that are you know mixed up together, and um, that's why our approach to sort of segregate the different types of treatment combinations uh, is a is a big focus of our product. Nice. So the idea is that it's because pain is emotional that we can heal it.
1: Mm. now the part really interesting what you said so the brain is not just receiving stuff it's actually shaping the signals that it receives so why would the brain intentionally or or maybe intentionally is the wrong word but why would the brain um, change manipulate signals into pain
0: if it if So the brain is obsessed with what just happened and what's about to happen. Hmm. And a lot of brain power is devoted to predicting what will happen next. Right. And if there is an indication of danger, and given the brain's natural bias toward negative processing, the brain is going to amplify the signs the, the signs of danger yeah. so you pay attention to that and you act accordingly aha yes so it, the i i don't think my personal theory of chronic pain is that it's beautiful emotional learning it's hyper learning The body's done exactly what it's supposed to do. Mm. You know, the the receptors have enhanced the signal. The spinal cord has amplified it. The brain is paying attention to it. If this were any other type of learning, it would be, it would just be masterful. Mm. But because it hurts, Mm. we think of it as pathological. In fact, it's an example of our, our bodies and brains working beautifully together to amplify signals that, that are could endanger our survival
1: great really well put thank you so much melissa
0: you're welcome
1: okay that was melissa farmer you can find links to her work on my website noticingtheobvious.com I also appreciate all feedback from listeners, so please send me a line to say you enjoyed it or whatever else you want to say. Do you want to hear more from Melissa? Do you want to hear more from other guests? Let me know. www.noticingtheobvious.com Alright, that's it from me. Thanks for listening. I'm Tan Le and join me again next time.